So I'm going to now uh, turn it over to uh, Deborah Peterson-Small, who's going to talk about it from her perspective as working in communities uh, and the drug war and the types of surveillance and privacy invasions that happen. Yes, good afternoon. Thank you so much, Jumana. And I just want to encourage everyone who's on the call, if they haven't already, to read the excellent report that DRUM issued earlier this year entitled In Our Own Words, which recounted many of the stories that FN um, shared with us and um, other stories and data about the way in which um, South Asians have been targeted and racially profiled by the NYPD. And we know that this is not just a New York City phenomenon. It's something that's happening around the country. Um, I wanted to start my comments by sort of sharing a story of um, something that happened in my life many years ago that really sort of raised my antenna to this issue. About 2000, 1999-2000, my son was um, working at the time in the AmeriCorps program as a student teacher at a program in South Brooklyn. And one day he left the house to go to work, and about five, ten minutes later he came back in. And I asked him, why did he come back? And he said, well, he came back because he forgot his ID. And I'm like, well, why did you need it? You're not driving today. You're taking the train. And he's like, Mom, I can't be on the street without my ID. If the police stop me, you know, you're going to have to pick me up at the police station. And I'm like, really? He's like, yeah. And I was like, oh, okay. And he left the house. And I thought about it because as a adult woman, I never had the experience of people stopping me and asking me for my ID. But in that short exchanged, I realized that that was an experience that he had so often that he felt that he had to be prepared for it every day. And this is a child who grew up with lawyers, who knows about his civil liberties, but who also felt that this is what he needed. And it made me realize that for young people, particularly young men of color, that we really did have a totally um, apartheid system in New York because they didn't feel that they could be on the street without their ID or a pass. And this was in 2000. Things have not changed substantially. So I want people to think about, you know, what it would mean if you had your son, your brother, your cousin, your nephew leave the house to go visit a friend, and the friend lives a few blocks away. And if you live in a city, it's in another apartment building. And they go to their friend's house, and for whatever reason, the friend is not home. But the next call you get is not from your child or your relative telling you that they're on their way home, but it's from the police telling police station with them telling you that they've been picked up. And what was their offense? Their offense was trespassing because they were in a public building that they did not belong in. Now, most people would hear that scenario and think that that was preposterous. But in New York City, there were more than 40,000 arrests every year of young people charged with trespass under scenarios exactly like that. And all of that is part of the overall system of surveillance and racial profiling that has come to become a substitute, I say, for criminal justice policy in the city. So the number one misdemeanor offense that people are arrested for is possessing small amounts of marijuana. And one of the reasons that this has become such a contentious issue in New York is because marijuana possession was decriminalized almost 40 years ago. 
as a way of preventing then white youth from acquiring criminal records for being arrested for possessing small amounts of marijuana. Fast forward from 1977 when the legislature did that to 1997 and 2007 where you have record numbers of arrests for marijuana possession, which in and of itself would not be horrible if people were actually breaking the law. But the majority of those arrests are the result of people being stopped by the police, being frisked by the police, by the police either going into their pockets or telling them to empty their pockets. And then in the course of doing that, if they find a small amount of marijuana, they say, ah, you've now committed the offense of having marijuana in public view, we can arrest you and we can take you downtown and we can book you and we can fingerprint you and we can keep you in jail for as long as it takes for you to be arraigned, make bail or whatever. Those things are literally, we're talking 40, 50,000 arrests a year with 85% of those arrests being of African-American or Latino men under the age of 25 in a city where marijuana use is pretty endemic and not just limited to young people. In fact, many statistics show that the second highest group of users after young people are people in the age of between 40 and 50, and yet rarely are they ever arrested for possessing marijuana in New York City. And that's just sort of the things that make the paper. You have a situation now where almost everyone who's arrested for any offense in New York, whether it's a serious felony or something as simple as having an open container or the kind of trespass that I talked about or um, jaywalking or my favorite offense is using profane language in front of a police officer, which is also a misdemeanor that you can be arrested for. The mayor proposes to collect DNA evidence from all of these people, hair, saliva, other forms of um, DNA samples, which will then be kept in the city's criminal justice database, along with the already huge collection of fingerprints that they've acquired over the last 20 years from all of the people that they've stopped and frisked and arrested, okay? And what happens when you have that kind of system going on and the vast majority, the overwhelming majority of the people who are being arrested are people of color, it completely skews your database. So in a city where blacks and Latinos represent collectively 27% of the population, they end up representing more than 60% of all of the people who are in the criminal justice database because of the practices of surveillance and arresting and acquiring information from them. But I also wanted, I was really happy that um, Professor Perry talked about the other ways in which um, the surveillance state and affects people's privacy rights in ways that are not just limited to the criminal justice system but have been incorporated into the criminal justice system. So the whole idea that if you've ever been arrested for a crime or convicted of a drug crime, you lose your right to public housing means that not only for that person are their privacy rights invaded when they try to go home, but for their family members, they now are subject to being surveyed by the state to make sure that they haven't allowed someone to come into their apartment who has a 
felony drug conviction. So you may have a family member who spent time in jail or prison who gets out and wants to come home. They have nowhere else to go. If you allow that person into your home and someone else reports it or, or a social worker or someone else comes and visits your apartment, the whole family runs the risk of being evicted. Um, the idea of that people have to allow um, submit to paternity tests and um, cooperate with the state in tracking down missing fathers as a condition to getting public assistance is a practice that's pretty much used all across the country. And everyone thinks that it's legitimate, but there isn't any real conversation about what that actually means, both for the privacy rights of the women involved, but also what that means long term. Because if you're a poor woman, and you have a child with a man who's abusive, and you apply for public assistance, the state doesn't care that you did whatever it was that you could to get away from this person and that you're trying to not let them know where you are. You have to cooperate with the state in giving them whatever information they may have, that you may have, about where this person is so that they can locate that person and sue them for child support. And there is no conversation about whether or not that's going to have any kind of negative um, physical, psychological, or an emotional effect on that woman or on her children. And that's become pretty much day rigor practice in most states around the country. And um, I could also talk about people, the various proposals to make drug testing a condition for getting unemployment benefits, which is something that people pay into. We don't ask people to get drug tests in order to be able to claim the um, interest rates of their mortgage insurance or to be able to collect on their 401k benefits or any of the other benefits that go to middle class people. But for, but for lots of different reasons, which I won't get into because I think Professor Perry covered it quite well, we seem to feel it's perfectly fine to ask people who are in need to have to submit to these kinds of invasions of privacy. But the final thing that I want to leave people with, and it relates back to the whole issue of racial profiling and stop and frisk in New York and the story that I told about my son. Two things. One, as soon as he was able, he left New York. And he doesn't live there, and he will never live there again. And then one of the main reasons that he left the city was because he said he got tired of being constantly stopped and harassed by the police. And in talking about the cost of racial profiling, you don't talk about what that means in terms of driving people away from their homes, from their families, from the communities that they grew up in and could probably make a contribution to, but who choose when they have the ability to leave to do that because they don't want to live their life that way. But the more important point that I want to leave people with is this. One of the statistics that gets quoted a lot in New York by the people who oppose um, the NYB, NYPD stop and frisk practices is the fact that more than 90% of the stops don't result in any kind of an arrest or summons at all. And they use that to prove rightfully that the majority of the people who are stopped are not engaged in any unlawful behavior. But there's another aspect of this that I think is equally important. There was a great um, story in the Times recently that talked about the fact that there were certain parts of the city, particularly the poorest parts of the city, where um, the stop and frisk practice was also accompanied more often with force. 
and people talked about the fact that if they talked back in any way or resisted in any way, they were more likely to be thrown up against the wall, thrown down against the ground, or in some way physically encountered by that officer as a way of letting them know that no resistance would be brooked. And one of the ways in which that plays out is in that statistic about the fact that so many of these stops result in nothing. And one of the things that that tells us is that the vast majority of the people who are being stopped and frisked in violation of their um, basic constitutional rights feel that they have no choice but to comply so that they can avoid having a more negative consequence and that we are basically teaching a whole entire generation of young men of color that the only thing that they can do is comply, even with unlawful requests, because no one will protect them. And the price of noncompliance can be arrest and more seriously death. But I really think that we need to think about what it means as a society when you not only are telegraphing that information, but when you're also generating an entire generation of people who have been taught to comply with all commands, whether they're legitimate or not. What does that mean for them, and what does that mean for our society, and what does that mean for the viability of our democracy? And I'll stop with that.